session with Dr. Farid Holaku. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamro. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram, or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program, and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcasts on iTunes and Spotify. Again, our studio number 310-441-0555. Before I begin, I wanted to thank Jamon Hicks, who joined me on the show Monday night. Jamon is a attorney, and we talked about race, racism uh, in the United States, and also police brutality, and because he's an attorney with a lot of experience in the realm of uh, police brutality, he was able to share his insights on what's going on and where we go from here from a legal perspective. And he's also part of a task force that is uh, trying to make progress when it comes to police reform in uh, California. But of course, hopefully that will affect changes everywhere. So a big thank you to him for joining me on the show Monday night. And so because I had him on the show, didn't talk about the book that night, so I'll do the book review today. Uh, but the book for this week is Riot Baby by Tochi Onyabuchi. And so I, I heard about this book a few months ago and ordered it then. And I usually have a bunch of books lined up already to then pick for the coming weeks. And so I picked this, uh, I, I bought this a while ago, but hadn't read it yet. But um, it relates to what's happening now because the title Riot Baby, it's about two kids, as far as I know, who were born around the time of the, the riots back in the Rodney King uh, trial around 92 or so here in, in the United States or in Los Angeles. And then it's a, a science fiction. I have never not read a book for the show that is science fiction, but it's science fiction, but of course relates to the real world and also relevant to what's going on with the protests and things that are happening across the country and across the world. So that's Riot Baby by Tochi Onyabuchi. The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about today is Transcend, The New Science of Self-Actualization by Scott Barry Kaufman. And I didn't mention, but this book actually was recommended to me by a listener, Elnaz, uh, on Twitter. She sent me something and also to the author, Scott Barry Kaufman, uh, saying that he, she thought we were maybe aligned in some of the ways we see things and an interest in humanistic psychology. And so she recommended the book. I hadn't uh, read it, but I'd heard of it, so I ordered it and read it this week, and I, I did find it very interesting. So again, Transcend by Scott Barry Kaufman, The New Science of Self-Actualization. And so when we hear self-actualization, very often what will likely come to mind is uh, Abraham Maslow and his hierarchy of needs, which started with more basic physical type needs, but built up all the way to this peak, which was, uh, which is self-actualization in a way becoming fully human or, or full potential. Now, it's really interesting about this uh, hierarchy of needs. If you've taken a basic psychology course, or you've probably even seen it online, you've seen it as a pyramid, 
this very this clear pyramid which starts with the more basic needs at the base uh, and then builds up to self-actualization but very interestingly maslow himself never put the uh, needs in a pyramid in that way and, and it's so interesting because i've seen it that way every single time um, and so you just assume that's something that he himself created and presented but it is not the case this was uh, made by other people it seems that it was made by people who were more in the business management or organizational um, realm who thought it would look good in this way uh, by a management consultant back in the 60s. So some people looked into this and so they thought it looked better in this way and made sense in a type of hierarchical pyramid people might have appealed to it more. And now it gets lost in the fact that this is actually now he, how he himself presented it because he thought it was much more about integrating the self and different aspects of ourself. And yes, uh, he mentioned that, for example, if you're very hungry, if you have a very basic need, you will have a harder time going to things like esteem and love and self-actualization. You can get prioritized by those deficiency needs, which makes sense. So there is some level of uh, hierarchy or basicness to some of the needs that must be fulfilled before we can progress. But this clear, uh, vision of this step-by-step -step model that you finish this step and then you go to this step uh, as Scott Barry Kaufman himself talks about kind of like a video game is not accurate that you finish this level you go to the next level when you finish that level you go to the higher level until you finally get to the end and get your reward it's not like that and even the reward of becoming self-actualized and going beyond that to transcend is not something you just achieve it's constantly something you are striving towards or working towards in a way an aspirational ideal and so uh what uh, scott barry kaufman did which is really interesting is he went back and read a lot of unpublished notes and, and uh even letters and things that maslow had written in his own life to get a better understanding of what maslow himself seemed to have actually meant it seems that we have misrepresented him or misunderstood a lot of what he described and so this book is his uh way of integrating the work of Maslow that we maybe have not seen, and also adding his own perspective on them. And so rather than looking at it as a pyramid, he thinks we should have a new type of paradigm and a new analogy. And the analogy he creates for this is of a sailboat. So the hierarchy of needs, rather than being a pyramid, a sailboat. And also that could be interesting to think of it that way in the sense that uh, you are essentially becoming this person, try to build yourself with strength and also the ability to go to certain places within the waves and the sea of life where there is unpredictable things, things you can't control, but the better that boat you create, which is yourself, the better you'll be able to manage that or handle what's going on there. So the first three needs, the way he explains it, are, are security needs. And this creates the base of the boat. Essentially, when you're in a sailboat, this is the part that you're in that is in the water. And the first one is safety, which includes the things like the biological needs, but also just feeling safe. And, and this, you know, uh, leads me to a critique that some people have had of Maslow in general with the hierarchy of needs, that it is in some way elitist. And there is some truth to that in the sense that when we're trying to transcend and we're trying to go into these higher levels of human potentiality, we need to have those basic needs met, physical needs, safety needs, biological needs. 
And if they're not met, we really can't go higher. And so uh, he does actually talk about Maslow himself about cultural differences. So he wasn't completely unaware of the cultural differences. We have to always be aware that the lens that we try to say is the healthiest way to be human is going to be affected by our the history, by our societal and cultural context as well. Uh, but he did say there is going to be individual differences and that different cultures and the way the society is created can lead to different space for humans to develop. But he did recognize cultural differences. Now, I do think it's something important to point out that as humanity, as uh, citizens of the world, being aware of how much we allow for everyone to develop into their full potential, both in the sense that how do we measure people? We know the traditional ways of measuring things like IQ and grades and success that are very limited tend to exclude many of the strengths of people, of individuals that we sometimes think that there's only one way to be good or smart or successful when there isn't. And a basic understanding of humanistic psychology is this mindset that every human being is valuable. Every human being has strengths and unique gifts. And we would all benefit if we lived in a world where we allowed everyone to express those gifts, to express who they are, to uh, share that, both for that individual, of course, it feels better for them and it's a better experience and everyone should have that opportunity, but also as a society, as the world, we will all benefit more when everyone gets to share their gifts, share their uh, talents and unique abilities. And so when we limit the way we view that, we're going to be missing out. And then on top of that, as I was saying, when we experience high levels of poverty in, for certain individuals or people are not safe, whether it's in a war-torn country or somewhere that's very violent, uh, or people aren't allowed to express themselves, be themselves, whether it's related to things like sexual orientation, uh, disability, or what we're discussing so much currently, which has always been the case here in the United States, race where it might limit the access to certain opportunities like education that you might have in other opportunities. These things make it so that not everyone gets that same opportunity to self-actualize, to develop their full potential. So in that way, I do agree with that mindset that looking at the limiting factor that not everyone gets a chance to achieve these things doesn't mean that Maslow was elitist, but that in a way our society is favoring a few or favoring even if it's some, but excluding many from the possibilities of becoming their fullest self to becoming that uh, self actualized self meaning meeting their full potential. And it's up to us to change that to make that more possible. It reminded me of this quote that I, I really liked. I was looking for a quote from Stephen Jay Gould, which I found it was another quote. But then I came across this one that I think is relevant to this discussion. So let me read you that quote now. I am somehow less interested in the weight and convolutions of Einstein's brain than in the near certainty that people of equal talent have lived and died in cotton fields and sweatshops. Um, and, and so, you know, I know when Einstein was alive and then also when he was dying, people were so interested and excited to study his brain. And I think they did preserve his brain and try to study it. And there were, I think, some differences. I, I don't quote me on anything I'm saying here but I don't think it was anything extraordinary. But I think that point is a very good one, that 
Um, yes, his brain and he was remarkable, but what we also want to focus on and what Stephen Jay Gould is pointing out is how many individuals had equal intellectual ability, talent, and capability, but never were able to actualize that and express that because they weren't given the opportunity. They were forced to just uh, work in a certain way. They didn't have freedom to really develop themselves, get educated, and express themselves. And I think that's something that we as a society should be focusing on. How we, first of all, are not giving that opportunity to everyone, which is inhumane, which is not valuing every human life and giving everyone as equal as a chance as we can get. I say that because I know when you say equal, then people think everyone should have exactly the same of everything, which is not possible, but we want to minimize the inequalities that exist. And then also again, how we all lose the benefits of their contributions when we don't give people that experience to then express themselves. We lose out on those gifts artistic gifts, intellectual gifts, scientific contributions, um, social science types of contributions, all sorts. We are all missing out when we don't give people that opportunity. So I think when we consider this, these hierarchy of needs, or you know, he has a sailboat analogy and we try to build ourselves up, it is important to consider that it doesn't mean it's inherently elitist to think of these things to think of trying to self-actualize, of every human being being valued and trying to allow everyone to reach their full potential. But we do tend to live, or we do not tend, we live in an elitist society in the sense that not everyone gets access or the opportunity to achieve those things. So in that sense, it can be elitist and we should strive to create a world, a society where everyone does have that type of access and opportunity to self-actualize. And then of course, what they do with that opportunity is going to be up to them, but everyone deserves that opportunity. And then we as a society deserve to receive the benefits of giving everyone that chance to express those talents, those gifts. And so I hadn't thought of myself so clearly as a humanistic psychology and I, psychologist, and I don't like labels in general uh, in a lot of ways, but I definitely, after reading this book and getting more in touch and recognizing that um, Eric Fromm, Viktor Frankl, Eric Fromm is one of my favorite thinkers, was very much in the humanistic realm. I can relate to that in valuing each human being and their unique potentiality and their humanness is something that we can recognize and that true health is experienced when we as individuals recognize all the aspects of ourself and true health as a society is recognized when we value all the aspects of every human being that every human being is valued as well so we have the humanistic psychology in the individual sense but humanistic sociology or uh, humanistic worldview where we see that everyone is valued now this book has a lot to get into and i wanted to expand on it more so i'm going to continue in the next segment talking about the book transcend the new science of self-actualization by scott barry kaufman you're listening to in session with dr fadi delacqui we'll be right back Welcome back. Studio number 3104410555. In the first segment, I was talking about the book of the week from last week, which is Transcend the New Science of Self-Actualization by Scott Barry Kaufman. And in that book, he gives us a new, fresh perspective on Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which 
as was presented, as always been presented as a pyramid, with the pinnacle being self-actualization, but he revisits that notion of this hierarchical, clear hierarchy, as he puts it, I think, from the words of Maslow himself, sometimes it's two steps forward, one step back, and it's more about integrating the needs and that you actually might be working on multiple needs at the same time. So it isn't this, I'm just on this level, and then when I finish that, I go to the next one. At multiple times, different things are coming up, and even physical needs come up every day, right? We're dealing with them physically. Hopefully, we have access to take care of all of those needs and get them met, those deficiency needs, as it is put. But uh, we, we need to always address those, and we can't only focus on higher needs, but we want to try to focus more of our energy there if we can. So as I was saying, the boat is created by the security needs, as is uh, explained by Scott Barry Kaufman in his sailboat analogy. That's the part in the waters, the security needs, which we need, which makes sense. You need a feeling of security and safety to then progress forward, which makes sense. Um, so, uh, and that's what I was saying, we want to make sure everyone has access to that. So we have safety, connection, and self-esteem. So we have those needs you need to connect. And he talked about attachment and attachment theory in that segment. And then in self-esteem, he actually includes not just self-esteem, but also the esteem of others, which can be very tied together. And so I thought that was interesting. And he mentioned that self-esteem can have two components to it. One is more of a sense of self-worth, uh, like who am I just valuable as I am and that I should be worthy of love and to others. And then the other one is mastery. Sometimes people will call that the self-confidence side. And so this is why you know people will talk about a lot of these factors, self-confidence, self-esteem, um, self-love, and they're of course very related but they can be sometimes different ways of cutting up the same things. We want to understand what we're talking about. Because even as he says self-esteem, we sometimes think someone who is a huge narcissist is very, uh, has a lot of self-esteem, but usually they do not. They do not feel very good about themselves and this is to compensate for that. So the, the self-worth side is more of the I have value just as I am, which I think is missing for a lot of people because that mastery side sometimes takes over where we think our worth is in our performance or what we do. And not just what we do, period, but in that given moment. So it seems like we're constantly trying to fight for it and earn it. And so to me, that self-worth part is a more enduring part that you feel that you are worth respect and love just for being a human being. And you recognize that in all people, that everyone is worthy of love, respect, and having their human rights met and respected, regardless of what they do just from being a human being. And then there's that mastery side. So uh, these things, you know, you could look at them different ways, and I've seen them defined different ways, but he describes that in the literature, the research, there seems to be this type of distinction. So those were the security part of the boat, which is the part that is in the water, the safety, connection, and self-esteem. But then there's the sail part of the boat, of the sailboat, which helps, you can say, give you direction, or as he puts it, that's the growth part. And so once you have those more basic security needs met, you can go towards growth. And the first part he puts uh, in that sailboat is exploration. And so he describes it as a fundamental human need to explore. And we can understand that human beings, uh, we are, we need to explore, first of all, just to get what we need. 
as far as resources go. If you never explore, you can't get the food, water, shelter, those types of things, but also things like connection and love. We have to explore and take risks. And here's where, as is often the case when you look at this humanistic perspective and the perspective that Scott Barry Kaufman shares in the book, where balance is very important. Very often we're looking for guiding principles that are very all or nothing. You have to become this way. You have to do this 100%. Always do this, never do that. But what we really find is most of surviving human life, human relationships comes back to balance and integration. So exploration is good, but of course you can't only explore and keep seeking out novel things, but safety is not gonna be good too if you never explore. And so it's finding that balance that you are exploring, looking outside, looking for new opportunities, new things, but also some level of stability as well. Same with romantic relationships. I've talked before about this balance of passion and also stability. And it's not just one or the other that you only have passion, you only have stability, but we know that when we go too extreme either way, that can lead to problems. If it's just the passion part, you don't really have parts of the connection might not be there. And the stability part is often what leads to what people experience as boredom. You want to just feel like your partner is so predictable and known that they become kind of this dead thing. And you lose that passion, you trade it for that security and that stability, but the marriage or the relationship loses its passion and becomes very stale and boring. But we're choosing that because we're having a hard time navigating this balance between seeing our partner as someone we do know at some level, but do not completely know. They're still not completely known to us, just like we will never be 100% known to ourselves as well. And so holding on to that wonder and curiosity about our partner is very important. And I might touch on that later on in looking at the mindset of someone who's transcending or, or self-actualizing. And then after exploration, he talks about love. And so if you've listened to me talk about books before, I usually say my favorite book, I think, I don't really have an exact favorite, but definitely one of my favorites strongly is uh, the Art of Loving by Eric Fromm, which I think is a wonderful book, highly recommend it. It's a shorter book, but a very deep book. So just because it's short doesn't mean it's not, it might not take you a long time to get through it in the sense of processing it. I've read it myself probably four or five times and each time get much more from it. Um, but in that mature type of love or that real loving uh, that, that uh, Fromm talks about and also Maslow had talked about a B-love which is more like from the being versus a D-love. So D-love is deficiency. That means that it's just, I need you, so I love you. Um, and then the B-love, as Fromm said, is that I love you be because, I need you because I love you, meaning that because I love you so much, I want to be with you. It's a different type of feeling than I love you because I need you. If you go, I die. If you go, I, I can't survive. And so loving someone in this B-love means that you love the, you love the person for their whole being. You see them as a whole being and they're not a uh, ends, uh, means to an end to give you some kind of gratification to help you feel good in some way. And it reminds you of Aristotle's three level, levels of friendship or love, where in that higher level, it's about the goodness of the person. You are not just loving them because they make you feel good or because it gives you some status. And a lot of the dating advice and self-help books related to love and dating, they make people like a commodity, which is something that Eric Fromm wrote about many decades ago, was the commodification of people, that 
this is how good I am, this is how good you are, I have to try to find someone in the market, if I can trade up someone who's better than me on the market, because then that'll make my value go up or give me benefits. And so we see that people look at each other and even look at themselves as these products and commodities that are being traded, rather than loving a person fully for who they are on a deeper level in their whole humanness, which uh, creates a different type of love. And it makes sense that when we see love as this exchange of goods or products, it's much more likely for us to get bored of it. Because if you buy a product, very rarely are you going to be excited about it for a very long time, or especially when we're talking about the rest of our lives, when people commit to marriage to one person. And so if we view our partner as this commodity and just this good to be used, of course you're going to get bored of it over time. It's going to lose its value and you're going to want a new product. That's how we are with almost everything we own. You have it for a while, then you seek out something new. Uh, but if we see them as a real whole person with so many facets and complexity that is continuing to grow as you grow, uh, to look at them with awe, meaning that we try to appreciate who they are and can be actually mesmerized by their goodness, their greatness, and everything that they are, then you have a very different experience in how you interact with them. So that was uh, the love part. And then um, I'll get back to love in a way at the end when I think of how we look at people in the world. But the highest part for him in the growth part of the um, sale, uh, the sale of the sailboat is purpose, living a life with purpose. And so people who are self-actualized, they seem to be fueled more by goodness of things or principles that matter, you know, a principally driven life. They do things because it's just, it's fair, it's kind, not because it has some other value to it. And so here's where it's so important to recognize that we can look at someone's actions, of course, and we should, but what's always more important than the action itself is the intention of the actor, the reason behind it. You can do something that on the surface looks very kind, but if you're doing it to manipulate that person to later use them, well, then it's not an actual kind act, we could say. Or if you are doing it to look good, which is very common, especially always, we're social um, beings who are always affected by our status and how people saw us, but it's amplified and exaggerated with social media where people post different things about what they're doing. And even I can acknowledge for myself, this is something I deal with. I don't post a lot of things of myself, and I know some people encourage me to do so, and I, I battle with this within myself of, okay, when I post something, what is my intention? I don't want it to be just to get attention, but sometimes I want to bring attention to something. And so, as I was mentioning before about balance and uh, constantly having to be a process, I go through that with myself and try to evaluate what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. So the why is always going to be more important than the what. Of course, we don't want to hurt anyone and say, well, if I have a good why, I can just hurt someone. But when we look at what we're doing, we always want to ask ourselves why, and not the why that's judgmental, but the why that's curious, trying to understand the intention behind it. Um, but he mentions purpose, and I think purpose is so important, and within purpose also is meaning in life. And for me, you want to live a meaningful life, not focus so much on living a happy life. And as he discusses a few times in the book and shares the thoughts of different people, that when we try to chase happiness, we actually usually don't get it. 
it's kind of an interesting paradox that if you just try to be happy, meaning feeling good, feeling uh, in pleasant states, feeling joyful all the time, usually you don't really achieve much because those things are more fleeting anyway. But when people go for meaning and living a good life, happiness tends to be a byproduct. And happiness doesn't mean feeling good all the time, being happy as far as smiling all the time. But what, the way I look at it is being happy with your life, meaning having a good feeling about the life you've lived, the person you've become, the things you have done, and the things also in a way that you haven't done, but the things that you've done and the person that you have become and the actions you've taken towards helping the world, this is what's going to leave you feeling good about your life. Essentially, when you're on your deathbed looking back at what you have done, feeling proud of what you've done, you're not going to look back and say, oh, I was happy here, this was joyful, those memories will be meaningful, especially if they're in connection with other people or, or experiences that you had. But that's less likely to be the things that make you feel good more than the way you've made the world a better place, the relationships you've created, the love you've shared and given, especially the love you've given to others. That's what you're likely going to feel good about. Uh, and then so when we're trying to look at these things all together, when we transcend to so the title of the book, you're going kind of past this. Uh, because self-actualization, as he also talked about Maslow, it's this paradox where if it's about the self, it seems like it's almost selfish. But what he realizes most self-actualizers and the ones who really achieve transcendence, they were not selfish people at all. They were very much other-minded, trying to help the world. They felt very interconnected with the world. And I think it's this interesting process that when you develop yourself fully and when you get those needs met, those basic needs met and then even those love, connection, those types of things um, met and love, you then actually uh, can transcend the self. And there's a way that you can have a death of the self, not in a bad way, but that because you feel like you've gotten enough, you can let go of those needs of, let's say, getting attention or fame or being uh, validated in a certain way. You'll always like them still. So again, it's not that you transcend them completely, but you can go more into the realm where it's less about getting those things met because you feel okay in that way. And you feel an interconnectedness with the world, which many people who've experienced self-actualization and then transcend that will feel. And, and it made me think of this way of uh, looking at this, that when the self dies in this good way, that you are not focused so much on your ego. I think ego is a, sometimes I don't like how it's used in such a negative way, but in the sense of trying to get defenses to get your needs met, to feel special or unique in a way that's above other people. When you let go of those things, we can look at ourselves as part of this world that we want to acknowledge the strengths and the gifts that we have because it can help other people and help make the world a better place, but not to get extra attention or fame or notoriety or money or whatever it might be because we feel okay in those ways. So then I look at myself and think, what gifts do I have to share with the world as not that I'm a product in a negative way, but that I belong to this world. And so I want to give of myself to this world as I would want everyone else to have that opportunity as well. So people who tend to get their basic needs met and then uh, get that connection and love and then purpose, they transcend or you can transcend and you feel more connected with everyone and you lose yourself. Uh, even Maslow himself facing death, he had a heart attack, which 
facing mortality seemed to switch some of his perspective, that he was less focused on certain things and realized uh, the beauty and the value of life in a different way. And even suggested imagining, uh, and, and it's, it's an exercise in the book or it's discussed in the book, even thinking about your own mortality, which sounds strange, it can make you live in a different way. The less you're afraid of death, the more you can live your life to the fullest and focus on that. And so losing ourselves in this positive way is a good thing. You know, even when people have what we might call a peak experience or when they're in flow, they notice that they lose themselves. Self-consciousness goes away. The sense of time could go away. They're using all of their capacities, all their faculties to the fullest in such a way that they lose themselves, again, in a very good way, not some way that you feel like you've lost yourself and need to find it. You feel so immersed and interconnected with the world that you're actually, in a way, at your best. You're using your faculties in the strongest way. And to me, that's what we are trying to achieve, to feel... Uh, get the needs met, feel good about ourselves, and then to transcend that means that we become part of the whole world and we see how can I serve the world in a better place. And yes, as a byproduct, you will feel good about that. But also as a byproduct, you'll see the negatives in the world, you'll see challenges, you will have ups and downs. And, and a humanistic psychologist will have the perspective that all of your feelings are part of being human and they need to be acknowledged. And that even we should accept our whole self, not just parts of ourself, don't try to get rid of the quote unquote bad parts, that the healthiest human being is one who has integrated all the parts of themselves and seen that they all have value in becoming a whole human being, not trying to just become uh, super happy all the time or super this way or always that way, that they find a balance to integrate. That's really a key word when we look at um, this humanistic perspective is integrating all the various aspects of the self in a healthy way. So I really enjoyed this book because uh, for me it was eye-opening. I always thought of the pyramid of the hierarchy of needs and seeing that Maslow himself did not ever write it in that way or create that type of diagram or express it that way. And also these new insights, which included a lot of new science that looks to validate or show which parts of the theory are, are supported by present-day science, I thought was very fascinating. So um, that's Transcend the New Science of Self-Actualization by Scott Barry Coffin. Let's go to another commercial break, studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Studio number 3104410555. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello? Yes, hi. Thanks for calling. Hi. I was going to ask you about the teenage children that might have ADHD, but they have not been treated for ADHD. Um, is it possible to do, do uh, put them on ADHD medication at the teenage uh, age, or is it too late? No, it's not about too too late. Um, you know, but you also said they haven't been tested. You you want to get them tested before you put them on medication because issues related to concentration and attention can be have lots of causes including anxiety, depression, amongst other things. So 
we don't want to just say, well, they're having a hard time concentrating. Let's give them the medication. And the way the medication works, most of the medications for ADHD, they're a, uh, we call a psychostimulant. And it, it could be interesting for some people because when you hear about ADHD, even that H is hyperactivity. So people think of someone who's very hyper and can't sit still, which is off and can't focus, which is often a part of what we see in individuals who, who have ADHD. And so it could be surprising that you'd give someone a stimulant, but really what's going on with someone with ADHD is that their frontal lobe or the part of the brain that is supposed to control things, to keep things under control, to control the impulses, to help us focus, that part is underactive. And so the drug is going to help to try to activate that part of the brain. Even for anyone, I, I've had this experience myself, if I didn't sleep enough the, the night before, the next day, it's harder for me to focus and I can seem more distracted, I might talk more, I could feel a slight difference depending on how sleep deprived I am. So it's it looks strange to think that if you're hyper and fidgeting, you would need something to stimulate you. But really, it's because the part of your brain that needs to serve as the executive functioning to to take control, that part of the brain is underactive. And so we see that regularly in individuals who have ADHD. So the medication, it's not that, you know, it's not a cure. So when you're asking me, is it too late? It's not that if you take it when you're young, then the brain changes forever. Depending on people, they do have different experiences. Some people, I don't want to say grow out of it. Maybe they never had it, so it's hard to say what was going on. They can change as they get older. It's not always going to be the same throughout their life. But the way it tends to work is that when you take it, it works for that time period. And then when it wears off, it'll uh, go away. So um, it's different than some other medications like antidepressants where you need to take it every day uh, consistently to have benefits and you have to keep taking it. A medication like ADHD medications tend to be more, uh, they act in that time period that they're in the body. And then as it goes away, the activity becomes less or the, the you know, the effect becomes less. Thank you very much. Sure. Thank you. All right. I hope that was helpful to her. Um, you know, okay, let's see. We got the disconnection. Thank you, Azada, for me. Uh, I wanted to talk about something else, you know, um, very much in the conversation of things going on right now in the United States and around the world is related to race, racism, and the treatment of police. And so it's led to a lot of uh, disorder and disunity, which is hurtful and, and sad to see. But of course, if everyone agreed on what was going on and what needs to be done, we wouldn't have the situation that we have now. So obviously, not everyone is on the same page, and I understand that even someone listening might not agree with my views. Uh, I tend to not get very political, but for me, issues of human rights are always something I will discuss um, in various degrees. And related to that, what I wanted to share, actually, I wanted to get into something, but I'll make a few comments because we have a few minutes before the commercial break. So I've been talking about race and racism um, even before the situation. It's a theme that's come up on my show since I've started because I think it's so important. I think it's a human rights issue. It's an issue related to justice and social justice in the United States and uh, around the world. And also it's related to psychology because it relates to how we see people in group versus um, out group. Uh, 
you know, judging people, assuming things about people, all sorts of things that are related to psychology, but also as a social justice piece. And I understand some people will write comments. Uh, again, you might not even agree with me on top of that about talking about, well, if you're talking about this, why don't you talk about that? And in a way, you're right uh, if I'm talking about one form of injustice, and if I'm saying injustice is not good, obviously, uh, I should fight for all types of injustice. And something I mentioned on the show on Monday night with Jamon Hicks was all human beings should fight for all human rights for all human beings. We would hope that we are all fighting for that. And I will miss a lot of things that are going on in the world, and I know some people want me to talk about certain things more than others and certain things that I might not talk about or not give a lot of attention to. And I, and I get that. And I want to hear what you have to say, because I am constantly being informed and learning more about what's going on in the world, what people are experiencing, what people are hearing about other people's experiences. And that that gives me a uh, lot of uh, information to learn more about what's happening, what I can do. But what we also want to recognize is that none of us is aware of all the injustices and is fighting for all the injustices all the time. There are so many groups that will get left behind or not mentioned at different periods of time. Even myself, I try to be aware of people with different experiences. I've talked about people with disabilities before, but until about, I think maybe it was two months ago now, I hadn't read a book um, from a, someone who was disabled as the author and about the rights of dis uh, people with disabilities in the world and here in the United States. I hadn't talked about that. And so, yes, I had neglected that group. Uh, I'm glad I did that show. Of course, I could have done much more. And so I will continue to try to do that, to look at what's going on in the world, talk about different groups, and recognize that there are people that are suffering in ways that we might not even understand in current society. People will look back at today and say, how could they have accepted this? Maybe something out of my awareness or out of the awareness of the world. Just like you look back 50 years and some things that were very basic, we're like, wow, that's so sexist, that's so racist, or how could that be acceptable? So we know that as much as we try to be aware of the injustices and suffering, we're gonna miss a lot of things, and I will too. So when I bring up issues related to inequality and injustices in the world, I'm not saying that's the only thing that's unjust in the world, or even though that's the most important thing, but that's something that I'm going to address. And so here in the United States right now, there has been a huge shift and focus to race and racism, specifically in the realm of police interactions and police brutality. Also, you'll hear the term systemic racism brought up a lot. And it is a very important issue. And I think one of the biggest issues, maybe the biggest issue in the United States, related to injustice is this particular issue of race and racism in the United States because it has been a part of the American history since America existed and continues to be and it's still not been fully addressed. Uh, so I understand some people might not agree with me and I'll always try to share my opinions and my thoughts and ideas the best I can not just to convince you, so to speak, but to give you an understanding based on my understanding. Uh, and I will focus on it more now because I'm not a political scientist and I don't exactly know how these things work, but we can see that there is momentum that's gained in different movements that can make that movement important to support at that time. 
Now, we don't want to forget the other people that are suffering. We don't want to neglect them, and that could happen. But we can only do so much at any given time, and our focus might be in one direction or another based on what's happening. Now, of course, it's also becoming trendy or cool to talk about these things or to post about them. And as I mentioned earlier in the show today, that's something I try to be mindful of myself. That what am I posting? Why am I posting? Even I think, you know, I probably thought this before, but didn't post it as clearly before, potentially. So those are things I try to recognize and um, grapple with internally and trying to understand myself, what I have done, and also using that to recognize what I want to do now. If I feel that I should have done more before or I could have done more before and would have thought that was right, let me make sure I don't let those same things get in the way, whatever was keeping me from doing it before, now. And I try to be mindful of that and explore what I'm sharing now as opposed to before. Uh, If you've listened to my show for years, you know that I have brought up these issues before, but I recognize I can do more and I want to do more. And it also relates to when we deal with these issues. I talked about this a bit with uh, attorney Jamon Hicks on Monday night's show. There can sometimes be this competition of who's more woke or more aware uh, and more forward thinking and progressive in the ways they're looking at different topics. I think this is not helpful. Of course, we have to call out things when they're not okay, when they're racist, when some type of injustice is going on. Sometimes subtle racism can be even not more harmful, but we might not recognize the cumulative effects of things that are more covert and implicit types of racism. So we do have to call them out. But the judgmentalness, I think, can be hurtful rather than helpful when we try to almost compete over who's more aware, who is more woke, Uh, who is doing more. And I think, I've shared this thought before, that part of what contributes to this is that because we all are racist in some degree, meaning that we all hold on to biases or we all have different prejudices, we all do. That's part of being human is that these things being embedded and living in a culture, we don't live in a vacuum. These things have an effect on us. And I think because we have these feelings, thoughts, biases within ourselves that are not good or we know that are not good or don't fit the intellectual ideal we'd like to have or the way we see ourselves, we can project these onto others and get very mad at other people for subtle ways, of course, explicit ways as well, that might be extreme in the sense that it's not just related to what that person is saying or what's going on, but it reflects something within ourselves as well. And so I've ordered the book, How to Be Anti-Racist. I'm hoping it uh, arrives by Monday so I can make it the book of the week next week. Uh, But something that's important when we think about being against racism, of course, it's about pointing it out on the outside and trying to make change, but we do have to make sure we start within ourselves. We do have to make sure that we evaluate ourselves and what we ourselves are contributing to the problem, what we think and feel about these different issues internally in our truest level, not just what we want to present to others, and then what we can do about that. So I I recognize that when I share issues related to injustices, 
that some people might not, first of all, even agree with me to begin with, but even if they do agree with me, might think something else might be more important. And I can understand that. I'm going to share what's on my mind. And to be honest, I don't share everything that's obviously on my mind. If you look at my Instagram or my feeds, I don't post that much. I'm trying to be more active to, to try to make sure I'm making the points that I really feel strongly about heard more. But I don't post a lot. But there's a lot of things I care about that don't always say something about. And again, this is one of those things I have to deal with on my own of thinking of how much I want to do that. What's my intention? Is it wrong to hold it back is it wrong to say too much and evaluate that individually but just be aware that everyone not just me is posting certain things and not posting things that maybe they care about they might not care about the things you think are most important or the priorities might be different but i hope we can also support one another to bring about progress and change and fighting the injustices rather than competing with each other and tearing each other down in, in the efforts that are being made because they are not in our eyes optimal or the right thing to do or the most important thing. Let's go to another commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Jalakwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Studio number 310-441-0555. Let's go to another caller. Radio Hamro, you're on the air. Hi, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Thank you for calling. I'm so excited talking to you today. (laughs) Oh, Uh, oh, thank you. I'm excited too. uh, Happy to talk to you. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Farid, I have a question uh, about continuing education. I want to give you some background about myself. I'm terrified. Uh, and recently I graduated from the School of Public Health and Health System and my research was focused on uh, labor work and how anxiety uh, makes them more prone to musculoskeletal disorder. Hmm. And interestingly, at the end, probably this is related to your topic of today, uh, I noticed a lot of uh, um, uncovered discrimination at work and how people perceive pro- immigrants and how this pressure makes them more anxious and later more back pain, sciatica pain and this kind of stuff. Mm. Uh, just I wanted to give you some background about what I'm doing. Uh, mm-hmm. And now, uh, since January that I graduated for my master. I was uh, thinking about um, myself, about my family issue. I had the grief problem because my father passed away 10 years ago, but probably it's interesting for you. For last 10 years, I wasn't able to cry, and hmm. I had the problem of the grief. Uh, uh, I started to read some books about um, how to do the self-therapy and uh, to know a little bit about Freud. I didn't have any idea about psychology. And these two, three months, I really got interested into the psychology. And uh, I was thinking, what do you think about continuing education? And if you have any question, I want to go through that by your guide. Uh, if you have any question, I can continue in that regard. But this is the whole thing that I wanted okay. to tell you. 
And so when you say continuing education the way you said it, you mean within psychology, to pursue mm -hmm. psychology? Yes, okay. you know, uh, because I don't have psychological background, I was thinking even I'm happy to start, if I want, and this is my final decision, to start from master, not to go to the direct PhD, but I prefer to do master and also PhD both. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is obviously... Uh... It's always going to be complicated, especially for me to tell you what to study or not to study. Obviously, at the end, you're going to make the decision that you think makes sense for you because you know yourself and your circumstances better than I, I will. But I will share some thoughts on what you, you said. One thing we always have to be aware of, you know, goes back to... I was talking about the why. Why are we doing something? It, it, uh -huh. So why psychology? You're saying you're interested in it, which is good. We want to pursue education and a career that we're passionate about, we're interested in about, we find it in, uh, you know, fascinating, we want to get into it. But the way you also brought it up would want me to be cautious about, is it because you're trying to also figure part of yourself out? You, know, you said, I haven't cried you know, for 10 years. Okay, mm -hmm. one, one thing that I have to tell you, uh, I was in uh, marriage for 17 years. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, seven years I we were friends, 10 years marriage, and I talked with your daddy about my situation and why I want to study for PhD, and uh, he told me that because you want to switch your anxiety from the situation that you have to another thing. And I told him that uh, this is true because I don't know how to live. I, I feel uh, I need this state of anxiety. I don't comfortable without anxiety, probably. I'm not sure, but mm. this is the true thing about me. Uh, but uh, after that, when I talked with your dad, um, after a month, I just thinking, okay, is it really something that I want to focus my anxiety from my divorce and to switch it to some other aim and objective in my life? Or no, I really like that. But I'm really enjoying that. You know, I don't get tired. As much as I'm reading, I want to know more about a lot of perspectives. That's mm -hmm. why I was thinking probably this is not just... Sorry, I'm talking a lot, but I no, wanted to okay. give you some yeah. insight about myself. But in last month, I really deep down... And I thought about that, and and I believe I really enjoying doing that. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's so like I said, it's not that I know that's what you're doing, but it's something to be aware of in how you've presented it. Because yes, if you study psychology, anyone who studies psychology and goes deeper into it is going to learn more about themselves and understand things about themselves and their relationships and all sorts of things. But we want to make sure that isn't the drive. A lot of people. Uh, go into psychology for that reason, trying to uh, heal themselves or understand themselves, which wouldn't be the right motivation to go into the field. So it's still something I would want you to think about also, you know, you said self-therapy. Mm -hmm. That can only take you so far. You're going to need to go to your own therapy. And especially, I'm glad you can at least intellectually and, and logically recognize that you, have, you you put it yourself as a problem with grief but mm -hmm. being stuck in that way it's going to need emotional type of solutions not intellectual solutions and it seems like you're much more comfortable in the realm of intellectual rational mind but you're not as connected to your emotional self and mm -hmm. that's going to be important for you outside of just what you study and career and all of that 
but just personally that you it seems that you've split off and i can understand that when your father passed it was so painful that you probably felt like you couldn't feel all the feelings they probably felt <laughs> like too much so out of yeah. a defense you try to put those feelings away but they don't disappear and so yeah. I, I was talking about transcend today and in the book and talking about integrating what really to achieve health we have to integrate all the parts of ourselves ev even the sad and painful feelings that we might have and so that seems to be very clear in what you're talking about is that you've completely um divorced your emotional and rational parts and just want to live in the rational part of it and mm -hmm. not connect to it and maybe even in psychology you can look at feelings and talk about feelings but feeling feelings might be something <laughs> scary for you so it's almost like you're getting close to the thing you can't touch but you are afraid of it and, and so you might also enjoy that part again it doesn't mean that psychology is the wrong field for you but it's mm -hmm. something that i'd want to make sure you address even just on a personal level that to try to heal you're not going to just get through this by reading books maybe something that you're very good at and you enjoy keep reading books mm -hmm. as you know I, I love reading books too but if there isn't the emotional component of what you're going through now some books might have exercises you might do them that might help but from what you're describing how blocked those feelings are it's less likely that you'll be able to do this on your own than you would in, with the help of a therapist where you would get mm -hmm. deeper into this slowly start to connect to that pain it, it, you know you can't face it all at once it's going to take time obviously you've protected yourself from something that felt like yeah, it would be some overwhelming of them is really painful and i yeah. i know mm. it, even sometimes i feel when I start to do that on myself, it takes, for example, for only one small cry and just to understand what I'm feeling, probably one week mm -hmm. just working on myself. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there also could be, it's interesting because you might stay so much in this logical space, which maybe even to yourself or someone who sees you thinks you're such a logical person and not a very emotional person but it could be that you are so intensely emotional i think everyone obviously has emotions but you might be so intensely emotional that it's too overwhelming so you feel like you had to put that part away completely and so it's trying to find a way to balance that where you don't have to be overwhelmed by the feelings but we don't want to remove them from your experience and your existence and integrating that is going to be your uh the the health that you should be seeking is trying to integrate mm -hmm. those things together so i think it would be really important for you to seek out therapy of course you have to feel ready for it i'm sure you can recognize that it's going to be challenging it's going to be hard but mm -hmm. um 10 years of not crying i mean i guess you're saying you do cry maybe you meant you never cried about his losing him yeah. um that's telling us something there is a lot of that pain that you're carrying with you and so again it could be going into psychology it does seem like you're interested and fascinated that's wonderful and that could be genuine and what's going to be pushing you but there could be one element of it is that you're trying to study this thing you know it's almost like you're studying an animal in a zoo you're mm -hmm. afraid of the thing that's in the cage and you don't want it let out but as long as it's in the cage and you know you'll be protected from it you can evaluate it and study it from the outside in that safety and mm -hmm. so it can make sense that you want to get close to that animal but you're afraid of it and so what you're going to have to see is that even when that animal gets out of the cage it's not going to attack you or kill you it'll actually mm -hmm. make you better and stronger and will be okay yeah. 
And that's what we're going to, you know, I would want for you to do is to connect to that. And even saying animal, I know might come off a certain way, but it's that emotional side of yourself that will need to be incorporated into you. And even if you go into psychology, I think you would be a better psychologist, whether you're a researcher or a um, you know therapist, you'd be a better psychologist if you were more integrated in that way as well. So it's going to help you first and foremost for me is personally and as a human being, but then also mm -hmm. it would help you if you decide, first of all, to decide what to study. And then um, even if you do go into psychology, I think it would help you. Mm -hmm. And you know, Dr. Farid, since uh, January that I had plenty of time just to think about myself and understand myself, uh, I thought now I can live life uh, differently than before. And I want to teach everyone, anyone around me, I want to tell, okay, see the world in different way, in this way, mm. think in that way. And you know, I'm, I'm talking with people and I feel whenever I feel I'm, I can help them, gives me so power. Not, not I mean power in um, a selfish way. I mean the power of seeing other people can feel whatever you see or can enjoy mm -hmm. as far as you can enjoy. Uh, that can be well, you know, and again, that could be. Uh, and I know some of the words you said. You said power, and you changed it. it. Obviously, we feel good when we give to others. You know, Eric Fromm talked about it's better to give than receive, not because it's noble, because it hurts, but actually it makes me feel good about myself and what I have to give. And you know, you feel that vitality. So that can be good. Um, but how about this? You're saying you want to teach others, uh, you know, about this new way of seeing the world. Teach me a little bit. What have you learned or what do you think you, you want to share with others when you say you want to share that perspective with other people? You mean you want me to tell what I experienced? <laughs> yeah, well, you're saying you, you, know, you have this passion about teaching mm -hmm. others these things. I'm just curious. I know I'm, I'm putting you on the spot, so I know that's a lot of pressure, but I'm just curious what kind of mm -hmm. things come to your mind when you're saying that or what are some of those things? For example, things? Uh, before that, I, uh, I felt I understand my feeling, but I didn't. Or for example, uh, I put some priority, even though I wanted to care about myself, those priority comes to care about myself. But now I notice, no, they are not in deep down. They are just a pressure. Or for example, I notice when I'm reading even about the psychology, when I'm in the flow state, it's tremendously different than when I have the anxiety of, okay, am I going to accept the university? Is it the good thing that I'm doing? You know, when I'm bringing mm -hmm. some, even a small anxiety, how those stop me of going forward? But when I'm going to the freedom state, how everything goes well without getting tired. Or about my father, I noticed that, okay, for 10 years, I just uh, telling to myself, I don't want to talk with you, Daddy, because you left me. We don't have anything mm. to talk. But I wasn't able to go forward. And now I can see why I couldn't. And I, I felt really how it's painful even to start to write, okay, goodbye. Uh, and mm. uh, um, I can tell even I couldn't write goodbye now, but at least I came to that um, closeness to say goodbye to him. Or, mm -hmm. for example, even in my marriage, I, I saw the world in different way. Um, how I lock myself with a lot of things while we can both live very happily without having those uh, things that stop us from enjoying the life. 
<laughs> Probably these are simple, but I felt no. over me don't know anything about psychology. Just in two, three months. Uh, also, I start to use my dream uh, to understand some of the roots. Uh, just so I know it's funny, but <laughs> I start to do self-hypnosis. Hypnosis some nights. Uh, just these things so far. <laughs> okay, and, and you know, the, you, you said they're simple, but often the simple things are profound, so it's not that it has to always be so complex, and that's good, and there there seems to be, the way you talk about the passion, it can be a very good thing. Um, even, like, you know, again, you said, like, self-hypnosis or something, a very self type of a thing. I feel a disconnection when you're talking about all these things, that even when you're talking about people, it's talking to them about what's happening, but... Um, Maybe there's some issue with connecting to others that's there. Mm-hmm. And that's why also, even when you say self-therapy, self-hypnosis, um, self-love and all these things are very good self-care, but we also need to be connected. And there might be something there related to the marriage, but also related to your father and whatever else might be going on that I think will be very important for you to get into. And even gives me more reason to think that therapy would be beneficial for you to create that connected relationship, that emotionally intimate relationship with the therapist. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think, um, again, you're going to make the decision that you think is right, and you can make it obviously when you think is right. But I would recommend starting therapy immediately, mm-hmm. first of all, for you, because you deserve it to, to help you with the pain. It's going to be challenging. But also it could help you get a better sense of what's going on and making this decision for you. And as I said, I think even if you realize psychology, you're going into it for the right reasons and it's the right thing, um, you would do it with uh, even a more connected, integrated sense of yourself, which would make you better at whatever you decide to do within that field. So first and foremost for yourself, but then even for your studies and whatever you decide, I would say... Uh, go forward and do that. Now you're calling me, so that's good. And you called my father, so it shows you are willing to get help and to seek out. Um, Mm -hmm. But in these ways, even this could be a short type of connection that can be safer because you know it ends or it's going to be within a box. I I hope you'll seek out therapy soon to create Mm -hmm. that relationship, to face some of those feelings. And I think it'll help you get a better sense of why I want to study psychology really. Is it just something new and interesting and I'm learning about myself? or this is a genuine, longer-lasting passion that I think uh, would be good for me to study and I can make a contribution. So that would really be my biggest recommendation for you. Okay. About the th- therapy, the interesting thing is uh, it's about two years. I started from the um, counseling at the university, but later uh-huh. I noticed that they are not that, um, that as good as those psychologists outside. Uh, that's why when I noticed that I cannot get as much as I want from them, that's why I started to do the self-therapy, honestly. This is the reason okay. why I started to read by myself mm-hmm. and to work on myself. Uh, and the other now, let me stop you there. Let me just for, you know, and I understand it even, um, I don't take offense to that, but at one point I was doing an internship at a college here in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. So I was one of those therapists. Now, a lot of them might be in training and so it could be different than what you might receive outside, but it could still be helpful. But even in what you said there is that, okay, they are not good enough. I have to take care of myself. And mm-hmm. that's what I mean. Again, I get this feeling that you are learning that maybe before you felt dependent and now you want to be completely independent 
and mm -hmm. that itself is not a healthy reaction to the dependency. What we're looking for is interdependence, which is that I am okay on my own. I'm strong enough to take care of myself, but I want to be connected with others. First of all, to feel that connection and relationship because I'm a human being and also I can accomplish more or we can accomplish more together than I can on my own. So it's better to be interdependent. So there seems to be something about the, you know, the self-therapy, self-hypnosis, self-analyzing. Uh, and again, I recognize you're calling my father, you called me, so it's not completely that. But I still am hearing that and that, okay, the therapist can't help me, I need to help myself. And I, I hope you'll look for a therapist that you find helpful, even if you have to go, you know, a few times. Once you find someone, they'll keep going to them. Don't keep jumping around because that okay. could be part of not wanting to connect. But find a therapist. You're, you're not supposed to heal yourself and that's okay. You're mm -hmm. going to do the work, but you are allowed and you need to also get some help too to to get you to that point. So Thank I, I you hope you will go into that. telling me that. Yeah, I have this problem of independ being independent, yeah. and I have this issue from my childhood. Even I was when I was small, even seven, eight. I remember I don't wanted to say anything to my parents because I was worried they are going to broke. And mm. um, I know I have this problem, and I think this is me that I have to solve. There is no one outside I, that yeah. they can help me. Right. So you get that feeling that you can't, you know, it's it, it can be scary to rely on other people or to get help from them because they can let you down. And you're saying you felt that from a young age that you didn't have that. Maybe it's trust that you didn't have or something. Uh, it's a lot safer for a lot of people, and that's how it seems you feel to be by yourself. You know, we can say like an avoidant attachment style. It's easier uh -huh. to be, no one can hurt you if you are not interacting with anyone, if you're not connecting with anyone. And so to have a relationship, whether it's friendship or romantic, it always involves some level of risk because we can get hurt by them or by the relationship ending and things that happen within that realm. And so it seems like you've found this comfort zone of me and it's nice and i hope you love yourself and that's brilliant but there's a way you're, it seems that you might be isolating and mm -hmm. it could be what you want to do and that's what you decide to do we want to make sure it's not because you're afraid to connect or it's just a safety thing uh, rather than you may be choosing it so uh, again all these things to me points even more to going to therapy you know, we think of therapy as fixing problems, but the biggest thing that helps in therapy is the relationship you build with the therapist. And I think for you, even more, that's the uh, going to be the case because of how closed off it seems that you can be. So that to me is the next step, even before you decide what to study next, okay. is to do that. It seems like you're very intelligent. You've already studied and studied what you were talking about. It was very interesting about the anxiety leading to certain medical types of conditions within the realm of public health. So there's a lot you can contribute. But I think first and foremost is getting in touch with yourself. And then when you do that, you'll even be more in touch with what you want to do and doing it for the right reasons, which could be psychology. I'm not saying it's not that. Mm -hmm. But I think first and foremost, healing that uh, pain and healing, even connecting to that pain, that divide between you and your emotions, that's going to be the first step. And it also will connect you more to yourself first and to the rest of the world and other people. Okay. And Dr. Farid, I want just to see if I can continue still if we have time. You, you had another question? Yeah. You know what? Let me stop you there because we're way over a break, but that's okay. We can continue talking. I thought we might be wrapping up. So let just hang on the line and then after the break, we'll continue, okay? Sure. Yeah. All right. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fahir Lockley. We'll be right back. 
back. Before the break, I was with the caller. Let's go back to her now. Caller, are you still there? Hello? Yes, hi. Yes? Yes. We're back oh, on. Oh, Okay. <laughs> uh, sorry, I didn't know that. That's all right. Um, um, that's right. One of the things is about my anxiety. I know I have the t tremendous anxiety, and um, that is affect my body a lot. I have body pain all the time and headache. Um, but um, it seems my brain uh, had the technique without I noticed that it started. It seems everything for me like a box. For example, my dad's box, home box, my husband's box, studies. And um, all the time it, it seems for me that I'm closing one box, putting that over, and I'm starting to open the other one. But um, I don't know how I started doing that or how I'm thinking probably my brain is a strategy to cope these anxieties after my father mm -hmm. passed away. But my body probably reacting terribly on that because my brain is okay and I'm thinking everything is fine but my body reacting on the pressure that I'm receiving. Right. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, I want to see how I can work on that. You know, it seems um, you're right. I'm not feeling my emotion that much. That's why I feel I'm okay, but my body is saying, no, you are not okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, what, what you're saying is uh, there's so much that I wanted to respond to that because um, you know, we could talk about what you're doing as compartmentalizing is one way of describing, you know, like you said, putting them into different boxes, compartmentalizing. And we talked about it in the last segment that it probably feels like the feelings are too much or they're going to get in the way of yourself and surviving. And even as we talked about at the end of the last segment about things about being independent. So you don't want to be overwhelmed by the feelings and also you feel like you have to handle it all on your own. So you can't have too much going on, too many feelings, because you can't get that support from someone else to also help you with it, which makes it even more likely that you want to try to put those things away. And you mentioned the body. There's a wonderful book called The Body Keeps the Score, which is especially related to trauma, but it describes what you're saying is that even if we don't think about the feelings or try to feel the feelings, they don't disappear there in our body. And it's interesting because if we look at the research you said you did in public health, it was related to anxiety and how it leads to physical manifestations. So again, uh, and this is going to be true of many people, I don't want to make this in a way of judging what you were doing. Very often what we decide to study or look into, somehow it's connected to us. It's very rarely completely could have no meaning to us. But it's it, you're essentially studying when anxiety is there, how does it turn into physical symptoms? And it seems like you feel that too, that you try not to feel your anxiety or feel your feelings and it turns into physical types of things. So I think that's that's very interesting. Mm -hmm. Now, the only way we overcome anxiety, so when we have anxiety, it makes us want to avoid something. We, we are in a way fearful of that thing that we're anxious of. The only way, and it relates to what I was talking about before about the animal in the cage in the zoo in the last segment, is that we have to face it to see that it's not as scary as we think. So unfortunately, the only way out is through. If you are afraid of, let's say, dogs, um, you can do some things to help you, but then eventually you're going to have to to face a dog. I mean, 
people do have fear of dogs, of course, but they are also so cute. So it's an interesting thing to talk about. But then you realize this dog is not a scary thing. Uh, it's actually quite okay. And your anxiety becomes less over time. So that thing becomes less scary. So you're going to have to do the same thing with your feelings. And now you mentioned something which is very important that automatically you've done this. And human beings are incredibly resilient and we are so good from a young age in childhood of unconsciously developing a strategy that works for us to survive our environment. And it's amazing the different ways we can do that from, you know, like repressing or suppressing memories to you're saying compartmentalizing to acting a certain way to make sure we don't get hurt or whatever it might be. But unfortunately, what ends up happening is that strategy becomes too rigid and costs us later in our life. So maybe for you, the strategy of compartmentalizing allowed you to survive. You maybe did not have emotional support in certain ways that you needed. So you had to hold on to things, push them away, put them in boxes. But now as you're, um, you know, an adult and want to live your life and want to integrate all these different parts of yourself, it's hard for you to do that because the strategy is so automatic and so strong that it's very hard to break it because it seems like this is how I survive. If I don't do this, I fall apart. I die. I don't make it. And so to overcome that will take time. Uh, again, I think in therapy, it'll allow you to have the support of someone, a professional who can guide you and be with you as you take these risky steps towards facing what you're afraid of to see that it's not that scary after all, which eventually the anxiety becomes less. And even still, it's going to be so automatic that you'll have to continuously be mindful of it or else you'll go back to that comfort zone. But we have to see that what you're afraid of actually isn't that scary. It's not as scary mm -hmm. as you think it is. And that's going to be tough. It will take time. Yeah. Okay. And uh, my last question is about my age. I told you that I'm 35. And mm -hmm. did it, just, um, I, I know it's a uh, silly question, but I wanted just to know, do you think it's um, too late for making decision about what I like and what I would like to be my career? I, I don't think so. Uh, you know, I think we always have to be careful. Again, the the why is going to be important to me. Sometimes people yeah. keep switching what they're doing, not really because they are finding different interests, but it's because they don't want to commit to one thing. Just like people might do that in relationships. They will say, oh, this person is too much this way or too much that way. So I'm switching or ending this relationship. But it might be less about genuinely finding what they want and more about not wanting to fully commit to one thing. So no, I don't think 35 is too late. But similar to what I was saying, like with a therapist, I'd want you to pick a therapist once you find mm -hmm. one that matches okay, with yeah, you and commit. And so making sure you're fine, if you're you know, switching, it's for the right reasons. It's because you found something interesting, but then, you know, to really make a contribution in any field and to feel good about what we create, we really do need to stick to something for uh, quite a period of time. So these things are not black and white. It's not that we never switch and maybe someone switches at the age of 70 and it's the right thing to do to find something new. I'm not saying we shouldn't, but we want to again be aware of what's going on. Is it because I don't want to commit to one thing and go fully into it? Or is it genuinely because I've found my passion and my true calling and I want to go now in this direction? Mm -hmm. And so that's something mm -hmm. that I'd want you to look at more closely. So I wouldn't say 35 is too late. No, I don't look at it as black and white in that way. But really the intention is very important to see that is it just to switch to something new because it's new 
or because it's mm -hmm. actually, uh, you know, the passion and for the right reasons. And again, I don't want to keep saying the same thing, but I think that if you go to therapy and deal with what's going on, it'll give you a better idea of yourself, what you really mm -hmm. want and why you're doing these things, and it'll help you make the right decision for yourself. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, um, I, I sure. didn't um, plan to do it that immediately. I was thinking in one year or even <laughs> two years, uh, until I'm applying or even understanding myself um, to give myself time. I mean, just to okay. go at least to work one year and deep down to think about it. I know this is a big decision. But yeah, thank you and you know, let, and let me just add one thing. Sorry, I know you were, uh, thank you also for what you've shared. But I, what I wanted to say is, you know, even I know you're so into psychology and that's great. And it's not that you shouldn't go into it. And so I'm not saying close that door, but also what you were doing in public health was very much related to psychology too. So there could be ways that blending your interest in psychology with what you're doing now or what you've done is possible as well. So you don't have to necessarily go into it, but you have to pick the thing that feels most right to you and and good luck with that i appreciate you calling and i'm glad i got to speak with you thank you i greatly appreciate your time and thank you My for pleasure. your advice and if My you pleasure. want to continue i would listen the rest thank okay. you have a great day thank you have a bye. great day good luck to you take care thank you. Bye -bye. all right nice speaking with her let's go into our last commercial break you're listening to in session with dr fatty we will be right back welcome back in this last segment, uh, I wanted to talk about what's been going on uh, with the protests, things that are happening. It's been a very intense time around the world, but especially here in the United States. We had the coronavirus, or still are dealing with that, and then the lockdown and the social distancing and so many things being closed and so many aspects of our lives being interrupted or interfered in different ways. And then we had the uh, very widely publicized video of George Floyd being killed by the police in Minneapolis, which then led to uh, outcry and outrage and then protests. And part of those protests included some rioting and looting, which uh, was complicated by the fact that we didn't always know who was the one or who were the ones instigating different aspects of what was going on and then the interactions with the police with what was happening. So people were protesting police brutality, but then we saw images where protesters clashed with the police in ways that were uh, violent. And sometimes we could say there was more police brutality in those protests against pr police brutality. And we've seen continued protests, and uh, which I think is inspiring that maybe we can see some change. And we've already seen some uh, changes happening or the seeds of change, uh, bills being introduced in local and also national levels of government here in the United States and various different issues that are being brought up and discussed, which I think is important and good, but it does create a lot of tension. And I think we feel that people, of course, even before this, and it's always been the case, but people who differ in their ideologies, beliefs, political stances, uh, supports of different candidates and people they're against, it very often does lead to lots of arguments, lots of tension, disagreements, uh, people nowadays with social media blocking and unfriending one another uh, is happening all the time because of people disagreeing and the, what that leads to. Now, I'm not saying that part of it is good, but one thing I did want to talk about at the end of the show today was that when we try to bring about change when there is some level of injustice in the world 
it never happens so easily and smoothly. I am not in any way condoning or supporting violence or looting uh, when it comes to things like protests, so I'm not trying to justify them now. I do want to possibly on a later show talk about that as well, not in support of it, but in trying to understand the anger. And again, we don't know is who is the one or the ones who are committing those actions, but that there is anger involved in what's going on, which is understandable and we want to listen to that anger. But I wanted to, to talk about how when we want something or we want change to happen, it does lead to challenges, it does lead to things being uneasy, it does lead to inconveniences, uh, as people have experienced with things like the protests, blocking roads or dealing with things. These are parts of what happens. And what we usually see is when people look back on fights for justice, we are very you know, excited and inspired, especially if you agree with the changes that happen. Uh, and we think it's so great and wonderful what they did because we don't have to deal with the inconveniences and the challenges that were happening. Also, we don't know what we would have done if we were around then. We have the uh, benefit of hindsight and history and looking back to recognize who we think was on the right and wrong side of history. But we don't have to also face the inconveniences and the challenges that people had to experience to bring about the change. And then so then when we're living in the moment when changes are trying to happen or changes might be happening, we tend to not want those inconveniences or we tend to reject them or think that because of those inconveniences, the whole movement is not good or they should approach it in a different way. And I saw someone post a few days ago an excerpt from Martin Luther King Jr., his letter from a Birmingham jail, which he wrote April 16th of 1963. So we're talking about almost 60 years ago, about uh, 57 years ago, which I thought was very telling about how people might respond. Now, of course, some people are against the very progress some people are trying to fight towards or what they consider progress. They might be against it wholeheartedly and think it's wrong and things are good the way they are. But what can be disheartening is the people who might agree, who actually think there's injustice, but who disagree with how things are being done or who don't want to face those inconveniences. Actually, I think it's Martin Luther King Jr.'s quote. I don't want to say it directly because I don't think I have it memorized, but that in the end we will remember more, uh, not the negative words or the negativity from our enemies, but the silence of our friends, that part, the silence of friends who knew something was wrong but remained silent. So let me read you this excerpt from, this is from Martin Luther King Jr., from uh, a letter from a Birmingham jail from April 16th, 1963. I must confess that over the past few years I have been gravely dis disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action. Who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom. Who lives by a mythical concept of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. 
shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection, end quote. And so I know in there it says the white moderate. And of course, it doesn't mean it has to be someone who's white. It could be of any race or background. But essentially, the people who seem to be in agreement, but as he says, they are telling you, you need to wait or don't do it in this way. And we have to always be aware that it's very easy when you're not the one suffering, you're not the one feeling the pain, to tell someone to wait longer for their pain to be to go away or for things to be made right. Um, and to me, this also, to bring it into a smaller scale or looking at it from a different perspective, is what we see with disagreement in general. Even when I'm working with families or couples, we often, of course, want things to be better, but because we don't like that tension that comes about in trying to resolve conflict, to bring about and to face issues, we'd rather avoid them and say, okay, we'll, we'll deal with it later, or it's not a big deal, or we'll figure it out, and just push it forward to some other quote-unquote future time, which usually we never will face because we don't want to face that. So I want to emphasize some of those types of um, the lines he says. So he who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. A negative peace, which is the absence of tension. So letting things be the way they are, not facing things, not talking about the injustices, not hearing the cries of those who are suffering. There's a, a peace that comes with not having to hear those things and face those things. And it's sad that we can prefer those things over having actual justice in the world. That if someone is in pain, it doesn't feel good necessarily to hear it in that moment, but we should not be willing to accept or tolerate that they're in pain. Again, bringing this type of notion to a smaller scale. If you're, let's say, imagine a husband and wife. If one of them tells their partner something you did hurt me, of course that doesn't feel good. Let's say they're watching TV, enjoying their favorite show, and you know the husband realizes it's been on his mind. He's going to share with his wife how he feels and says, you know, something you did yesterday hurt my feelings. Now, of course, for that wife in that moment, enjoying the show was a lot easier and peaceful and was had that absence of tension to just enjoy that show and, and be in peace. But knowing that her husband is in pain if he truly loves him, we would hope that she would want to know and to help resolve and ameliorate that pain rather than ignore it because it feels easier to ignore it. Same thing with your child. Your child might be getting bullied at school and you're going about your day feeling great and your child has been hiding it from you. Now, if your child comes and tells you they've been bullied, I would hope that, of course, it would make you sad, you'd have a lot of feelings about it, would want to do something about it and support and love your child, but that you'd rather know than to not know, even if knowing means you now have to face this tension, face this uncomfortable feeling, and then to take actions, which also is more challenging than if you didn't have to act on anything. And so we should look at the suffering of people amongst us, even if it's not you who is suffering, and realize that we want to know the cries, the pains, uh, the suffering of people. That if we say we care about people and we want to help them, it does mean facing those things, experiencing that tension, and having to do something about it, which is always going to be harder than doing nothing. 
So it does make sense that it's easier to not know, to justify the pain, to ignore the pain, to say this is the way it's supposed to be or the way it always was. Or as uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. says here is, I don't like the way you're trying to bring about change or uh, in some future time we'll figure this out. Be patient. But it's very cruel to tell someone to be patient who is in pain while you're the one who's comfortable. And so if we really want to fight for others, we need to shift that mindset. So I was very moved by this, uh, this excerpt from this letter from a Birmingham jail from Martin Luther King Jr. Because I thought, sadly, as many of the writings you look at related to race and race relations in the United States, it could be from five years ago, 10 years ago, or 50 years ago, but it's almost as true then as it is now. And so we still see this. And again, I'm not condoning or supporting rioting or looting or that people should be killed uh, in, amongst these protests at all. I was very happy to see that this weekend things seemed to be much more peaceful, even though some of the numbers were even larger. For example, here in L.A., I think 20,000 people uh, were marching together in Hollywood. In, on Saturday, I was marching uh, and protested uh, in a protest that started for Breonna Taylor, who was shot in her own home. Uh, absolutely not doing anything in her sleep um, and it joined with another protest and we were walking together and it was very peaceful and people were even chanting peaceful protest and so I hope we'll make it more peaceful again I can't tell other people how they should express their pain I hope it'll be beneficial and bring about progress but I also hope that we recognize that when people are suffering it'll be inconvenient for us to become aware of their suffering You'd rather it doesn't exist. You'd rather not have to face it. But if we have to take a look in the mirror and ask ourselves, if I want to ignore someone else's pain, can I really say I care about people? I care about human beings. I care about the world. If I'd rather live in a bubble where that pain doesn't exist or I don't see it, is that really, what does that reflect on me and who I am? And so I hope we'll face that tension, that we'll face the tension that's necessary to achieve that positive peace, which is the presence of justice, as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. says in this excerpt from the letter of, from a Birmingham jail, that we have to do something about it. Yeah, it would be easier if there was no problem, but once there's a problem, we have to do something about it. I walk by uh, a pool and I see someone drowning, a boy is drowning, now I have to jump in and do something about it. Would my walk be a lot easier if there was no boy drowning in the pool? Absolutely. But guess what? That boy drowning is the one that's suffering. Just like the people who are suffering, you might think it's harder for you or it's easier for you to not have to deal with it. But imagine being the one that's dealing with the suffering that has to experience the suffering. It's much harder for them. So we can't pretend like we're, we don't see something. Once you do, we got to do something about it, even if it is more challenging. And so I say this to myself and everyone, that when we are fighting for justice, it is challenging, it is difficult, it isn't going to be convenient all the time, it is going to create lots of tension, but hopefully we will recognize that it is worth it and we can't ignore it and we can't just assume that by ignoring it it will go away because it doesn't. Uh, and so I'll post this quote later today on my uh, social media so you can check it out, but I thought it was very um, important for now to realize that we have to face this tension to go towards peace and justice. It always is the case. That brings us to the end of today's show. Thank you to the callers uh, and the listeners out there. And thank you to Ghazal in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dalakwi. Have a wonderful day.